Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 248 of the podcast. It's April 18th, 2016. And joining me today is Drew Locker. He's an author, consultant, and speaker. He is also a faculty member for both the Lean Enterprise Institute and the Theta Care Center for Healthcare Value. His books, um, and we're going to be talking about some of them today, include Value Stream Mapping for Lean Development, Lean Office and Service Simplified, and Unleashing the Power of 3P, the Key to Breakthrough Improvement. He's also most recently released a second edition of his book, The Complete Lean Enterprise, Value Stream Mapping for Office and Services, which is a recipient of the Shingo Research Award. In this episode, we're going to talk about his books, how lean is about more than just tools and the need, as, as Drew says, to focus on the critical few things instead of falling victim to a scattershot approach to reduce to lean and most everything else. So if you'd like to find links to his books, to a few uh, guest posts he's had on my website, videos about Drew and more, you can go to leanblog.org slash 248. Thanks for listening. Drew, hi. Thank you so much for being a guest here today on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. So for people who maybe don't know you and your background, why, why don't you introduce yourself, um, you know, tell us about your career, and, and maybe also touch on how you first got introduced to Lean. Uh, well, that goes back to the 1980s. I was part of uh, one of GE's corporate management development programs, and that's actually where I got introduced to Lean concepts. We didn't call it lean back in the 80s. <laughs> right. We called them world-class concepts. Uh, but we had two curriculum, the manufacturing leadership curriculum and the quality leadership curriculum. And that's where I got introduced to what today we would call lean principles, things like continuous flow, certainly all the quality management principles, Deming's teachings, et cetera. Uh, and then uh, on program and off program, we were expected to apply what we learned in whatever management role that we had. So that, that took me up to like 1990, I left GE in 1990 and started just working on my own with uh, different businesses and different industries. Kind of intentionally went out to all kinds of different industries like financial services, education, trucking and transportation, even healthcare uh, back in the 1990s. And oh boy, uh, the 80s and 1990, that was even pre-Six Sigma days at GE, right? Yes, absolutely. Or, or at least before that label was was being used but um, I mean would you agree there's there's a lot of common background in in Deming and TQM that that led into what we describe today as lean or even what people would call Six Sigma right absolutely yeah I'm a Demonite from way back <laughs> yeah and, and you know those, those I mean listeners might know those, those were my roots in a way I read uh, Dr. Deming's book out of the crisis before I really ever had too much formal education about lean you know my dad was introduced to him back in the auto industry so i think lean. that may i think that makes a big difference i mean I, i'd be curious um to hear some of your thoughts you know with your background in in deming how how does that contribute to an understanding of lean or you know what what happens maybe when people don't have that background with uh, the deming approach that's a great question uh one i think and i think you're you're along the same thinking as i we don't have that bias um, you know, there's so many people, if you learn Six Sigma, you have this bias against lean. If you 
kind of were introduced first to lean. You have this bias against the, the quality management principles per se. Depends on who taught you a lot. Um, you know, where we were taught both mm-hmm. and they're complementary. You need both. Uh, I think the folks that kind of came from that TQM Deming background understand it's more than tools. You know, there's the whole people side and the culture side, you know, providing a safe work environment, all that, um, per Deming's, you know, 14 management points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and some of those, you know, are, I think, very familiar with folks in Lean, you know, getting everybody involved, breaking down silos. You know, I did a podcast a few years ago with a professor who had written a book that was, uh, you know, decrying annual performance reviews, and that was one of Deming's main you know, a deadly sins, if you will, but but one that's uh, not really been embraced. But that's that's a different that's a different discussion, I guess. Um, so uh, you know, you've written four books. Um, I was wondering if we can kind of just walk through them and kind of you know uh, introduce each of the books to the listeners. Um, the first book, which is actually now in a, a second edition, so congratulations for that. Uh, the the completely in enterprise value stream mapping for office and service. Um, can you give us you know, an inter- overview of that book? So basically the, the idea was after Learning to See came out from John Shook and Mike Rother, which was really how to map and redesign material flows mainly, you know, the manufacturing value streams. Um, my intent was to kind of close the gap in the other two primary value streams as defined by Jim Womack and Dan Jones and Lean Thinking. One of which was information management. So that was the completely an enterprise. Um, how do we, you know, not just map but redesign those value streams, the information intensive value streams based on the lean principles. Um, so that's that was the purpose of that book. And the second edition is basically just captures my and my co- my co-authors, you know, learnings over the last ten or so years uh, in that subject. Mm-hmm. What, what, what are some of those key learnings um, you know, in, in practice? What, what are some of the, the, the new insights or things that you added into the book? Um, basically, the social aspects of the tool and the methodology. Uh, I don't know if everyone quite grasped that, like you mentioned, the cross-functional team approach. Um, but it's not just getting people in a room. It's the social aspects after that. You know, making sure that everyone stays together through the successful implementation of the first future state and then the continuous improvement thereafter of that value stream, whatever whatever the subject was of that value stream map. Um, I think another key learning that we had was just really through observation uh, and being asked to review a lot of value stream maps. I mean, every week I'm getting several that people ask me to, to look at. And what I see too often are current states with no proper future state maps. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of times that heads down a conversation about what would be akin to, you know, a waste war or drive-by Kaizen approach. And rather than a real deliberate, thoughtful process of redesigning the, the value stream um, along all the key principles of lean, not just waste reduction, mm-hmm. but flow and leveling. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in capturing all that in a in a more comprehensive future state map, so those are probably the two two things we've seen uh, the most in in terms of gaps in the use of the tool or just our own learnings. Mm-hmm. 
know, getting getting organizations to use this. Yeah. Can can you talk a little bit more about the the social side when you talk about what happens after the mapping? What what are some of the the common pitfalls in in that regard? Uh, often the team disbands and it's left up to someone. Uh, it could be the value stream manager or if we identified one. Too often it's left up to the continuous improvement, Kaizen promotion office, lean guys to try to make that future state happen uh, rather than the people actually responsible for that value stream, the, the department or functional managers within it. Uh, so that they kind of abdicate their responsibility to the lean practitioners and that doesn't usually go over so well right uh so what one of the things that we did in the future state questions we reworded them and made it very explicit you can't you don't you know, you're not just redesigning the work process but you're redesigning the management process as well uh and that you can't abdicate you know you can't turn mm -hmm. that over to somebody else so you know you have to change the way you manage that value stream day in and day out and you know needs to be in a collaborative way across the various functions and departments yeah uh, so you know a lot of people are doing the daily management routines with cross-functional managers going through an operation or maybe a value stream that would be kind of what similar to what we would really recommend but i don't know if everyone's always put that together with their value stream yeah. uh, redesign efforts yeah i mean I, i've always said it's it's not uh, it's not just about creating the map. And I, I see sometimes, you know, current state maps are drawn by one specialist who goes around and visits departments and interviews people where I've always preferred to do it as a, a collaborative pro process that creating the map, the process of creating the map is, is really valuable discussion in terms of breaking down silos and helping people see the bigger picture. Um, and, and it sounds like what you're saying on the on the other side, the, the point is not just to create a future state map. We have to make that future a reality, right? Yeah. And I agree with your comment with the current state. I, I run into that where an individual is mapping over the series of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and I always tell people, don't do not do that. Yeah. Um, and also, too, I think in current state mapping, people are spending a little too much time in the conference rooms or the meeting rooms, and they're not actually out and about mm -hmm. walking really I always emphasize you're showing, but you're, I'm sorry, you're telling, but you also want to show because people will better understand what it is you're describing. So like in office and ser well, services, we often can walk the flow, but office very often, it's a little difficult. Um, you know, the, the work is being done on computers and such. So we'll still in the meeting room call up, you know, the actual programs and screens and reports so everyone can see as well as hear what's being described. Because I've encountered where if we don't do that, people have different understandings, and that's that's not good. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your second book, uh, and, and you, know, you talked about information-intensive value streams. The second book was Value Stream Mapping for Lean Development. So are, are there are you talking about product development? Product and process. It's okay. uh, Jim mm -hmm. Womack and Dan Jones described the the second value stream as problem solving. So the market has a problem, you design a solution. So it could be a service process, it could be a product. Um, they're very similar really. So that was the, the intent of that second book was to provide people with a methodology around the development processes, product or process. 
And what are some of the main examples when, you know, in that book when you talk about development waste? Is it just delays in getting new products to market, defects in what's created, uh, not meeting the market's need? What, what types of waste do you see most often? Um, it can be all of those. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the things that in the current state you would learn. Is our problem speed the market? Is our problem getting the right you know, product to market or right service to market where the market is accepting it as we had hoped or expected. Um, probably the biggest, the biggest waste, and it's true of all office and services, is the defect or correction waste. Yeah. You know, the information quality just isn't quite right. And in development processes in particular, there's a tendency to excuse it away and just say, well, that's the nature of the process. Mm. So one of the things we try to, um, kind of distinguishes iterations. There are good iterations and bad iterations. Good iterations are those learning cycles that you hope you have in product development, and hopefully they're more rapid and more effective. Uh, then there's bad iterations, which is just pure rework, yeah. you know? um, and we try to distinguish those so people don't just lump them all together and say, well, it's the iterative nature of the development <laughs> process. You know, What can we do? It's, there's nothing you can do about it. It's like, well, maybe maybe a, a good portion there is. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've always said whether you think in terms of the framework of, of PDCA or PDSA or the lean startup or other iterative approaches that the ability to iterate is not an excuse for being sloppy or not planning well in the in the, the plan, do, study, adjust cycle. Well said. Yeah. Um, so your third book uh, was titled Lean Office and Service Simplified. So, you know, listeners are probably detecting a theme here, you know, um, office processes, service settings. What, what have you found, you know, to be some of the, are, there, are there key differences when applying lean in you know, office settings within, let's say, a manufacturing company or within within service sectors, including healthcare? Key differences? Uh, I think there's there are some key ones, though. A lot of times the arguments against the lean in those environments are the same things I heard 30 years ago in manufacturing. <laughs> yeah. We don't build cars. We build planes. We're right. different, right? <laughs> so, I mean, but there are some differences, uh, one of which is the tangibility of the work itself. It's not as physical. You know, it's, there's not parts and materials that you can go touch and trip over. And, but the work is there. It's just not as visible. Uh, it's an electronic form usually. And that screens for the use of like value stream mapping to make it visible. Mm -hmm. uh, the other comment that we often hear, this is actually going to be the my April subject of my April newsletter is we're different. Yeah. And everyone says that, but right. in office and services, when you press them, what do you mean by that? They often kind of fall back to the variability, the high variable nature in office and service environments. Now, part of that, we try to get them to understand that. Some you know a good portion of that is actionable, and it's our lack of standardized work and our lack of any coherent scheduling mechanism to manage flow. Those are just two examples that are contributing to this high variability. So it's really lack of management systems, lack of process management systems that contributes greatly to that variability. So, and that's all actionable. Mm -hmm. Now the nature of the work. That we, you know, is still variable, and that's okay. You know, like on value stream mapping, we encourage people to express the data in ranges, as long as the ranges are reasonable. Right. It's not things that happened five years ago, which people often will attempt to throw up at you. 
And, you know, so we talk about the, yes, it is variable. Uh, however, um, it's, you know, a big chunk of that is actionable and screams again for the application of lean concepts like standardized work and visual management and leveling, mm -hmm. uh, those concepts. Yeah. Um, and another aspect is the knowledge work piece, you know, uh, and then really this is kind of part of a broader issue in service and office environments uh, that they don't, those folks tend, don't, tend to not see process. Uh, like in product development, they, everything's a project, and those folks really struggle with seeing process. Uh, but they can be taught uh, how to see process. But they get hung up on the outputs, that everything is very different, and not realize that really what they're doing is a process, and the processing steps are pretty darn similar. Yeah. Once they can see that, then the clouds can kind of lift from their eyes, and then they can start seeing that, oh, we, we can apply lean and continuous improvement. You know, everything's not, every problem's not a, a one-off, you know, type of thing. Yeah. And, I mean, it, it, when you talk about people, they can be taught how to see process. I, I think it's it's fair, you know, I try to be understanding, um, you know, people in, in uh, non-manufacturing departments, or I think you know, people, especially in healthcare, um, haven't been taught to look at their work as as a process, and it's hard to blame them for that. You know, if they haven't oh. been taught to look at flow and to to break down silos, you know, it's often a lot of people often say healthcare is still it's not even a matter of making a, a transition from mass production to lean production. It's make still it's trying to make the leap from craft production to lean production. Where you hear phrases, I'm sure you've heard them in healthcare. Well, you know, every patient is unique. And I'm sure somebody in a product development process could say, hey, every new product we develop is unique. But yeah, exactly. you know, there's uh, a role for a role for process. What's interesting, that process very often that we're trying to standardize on to a large degree is a decision making process. And that's particularly true in healthcare. There's a thought process that a doctor, or a nurse that is assessing a, a patient, there's a thought process that they're going through, a decision process they're going through that we can standardize. Um, on a large degree, you know, what information, what questions should I ask, what information should I be gathering. Now, the actual decision making comes from experience and you know, probably some bias there. That's where maybe we, we can't standardize so much in the beginning. Yeah. But certainly the decision making process, the data and information gathering, that's all standard, uh, can be standardized. Yeah. So, you know, when we, you know, see, you know, uh, challenges in other industries where, where people sort of take that leap from, you know, we're different, lean doesn't apply here, maybe combined with a few bad experiences that they've had, that, that can often reinforce that idea of, well, see, I told you, lean doesn't work here, we're different. Um, so I thought we could transition and talk about um, a, a guest blog post. I think it was from one of your newsletters and I asked you to uh, post it on uh, the blog as a guest post. You asked the question, is your organization practicing unlean lean? So I was wondering if, you know, uh, I'll post a link to that post um, on, on the page for this episode. But can, how would you describe, you know, kind of, you know, give a summary of, you know, unlean lean? What, what does that phrase mean to you? Well, it depends on the subject. But generally speaking, it is a, uh, taking an approach that is really not what, the intention was and you can go right down the lean toolbox 
and you can just talk about it in general with lean. You know, people take like a tool approach and not understanding the, the people side of all this. And then they wonder after two to three years why they can't sustain because all they've been doing at that point is applying the, the myriad tools in the lean toolbox. Then within the toolbox, and you and I share the same frustrations, um, based on who taught them, uh, they could take an inappropriate approach to what are really just common sense type of concepts and just really spoil the water. You know, whether it be standardizing processes or work for the sake of standardizing or 5Sing for the sake of 5Sing. And, you know, people are pretty smart and they'll see through that approach and realize, hey, we're not getting much benefit out of this and they'd be right. And it's not because of the concept, it's just the approach that you know, somebody took or the organization took, usually very often that's the way they were taught by someone. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So and I've always said, you know, you, you can't really blame somebody for that, but you know, for, for what they've been taught, but you know, hopefully if people are really practicing lean, the plan, do, study, adjust cycle kicks in. Okay. I was told you always start with five S. So I'm running through the office and, you know, I've, there's, I'll just use one example I'd blogged about years ago. You know, five S says you're not allowed to put sweaters on the back of your chair in the office. <laughs> and then you, so you do that or you dictate, you know, maybe the wrong D in PDSA. And then people start getting upset with you. And instead of complaining about those people being resistant to 5S, maybe people should reflect and say, well, wait a minute, maybe they're upset for a good reason. Is it really benefiting the business to ban sweaters from the back of the chair? But, you know, sometimes people just plow ahead and um, continue irritating people. Uh, and I guess it's uh, can you fault them for not adjusting, maybe? Well, if they don't know any other way, you can't really fault them if that's all they've known. Mm -hmm. and, and the story you tell is a common one, and very often it's driven by the quote-unquote lean zealots mm -hmm. uh, that when you really dig a little deeper, they're just they're really neophytes. When you, you know, they've only had maybe a couple years' experience mm -hmm. in subjects, and just really doesn't give you maybe a deep enough um, or broad enough experience base to draw on. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what are some other examples of, you know, from what you've heard about or seen, you know, these, uh, if you will, these, these uh, I've called them sins of enthusiasm. People mean well, but like you said, maybe they're neophytes, they're new to this, they're just kind of plowing through and saying, well, I've been taught this tool, I need to implement this tool. What, what are some other examples? That... Well, a recent one, and uh, it came, it's kind of going around still a little bit on the social media. I put out an article on value stream mapping, and it's, kind of making the point that it's not a waste war you know you, you want this deliberate thoughtful redesign uh, of a value stream and you should just focus on the critical few things <laughs> that are really going to mm -hmm. give you breakthrough benefits um, well there was people that said oh no it's a waste war you know you get people together why would you not identify the hundred wastes and 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 go attack them you know, you're going to take this time and get people together. And I'm just like, really, how's that working for you? Yeah. you know, and are you really getting the, the results? And this was, you know, other supposed, you know, lean practitioners. Um, and, you know, we don't always practice what we preach. And we're not always willing to consider other viewpoints. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm having those discussions right now with an individual or two on the social media. Yeah. Um, and when you talk about the critical few, I mean, I think 
there are really important lessons if, if people read, you know, going back to Taiichi Ono uh, in, in his book on the Toyota production system, you know, he says, you know, you need to start from need. And he, he says you need to identify the, the, the most pressing needs, which I think is just a, a different way of saying what the, the point you made about the critical few. You know, what goals are we trying to accomplish? What do we need to accomplish as an organization? Right. Right. I agree. Yeah. So I can't maybe you know, kind of talk about maybe more of the, the sort of the, the positive side of things, um, you know, to, to that point about goals and objectives. Can, can you talk about maybe some examples where you've had that conversation? If, let's say a service organization or you know, a product development department comes to you and says, hey, Drew, we want to implement lean. Um, can, you, can you talk about some examples of, of helping them define goals and, and purpose? So, you know, we always start off and say, well, you know, why do you want to do lean, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know, your needs might drive you to a different path. Um, so is the issue, I'll, I'll use two examples. One was a longer duration product development process. Uh, and they have been doing, kind of dipping their toe in the water with the, the application of lean concepts to product development for about four years. And they realized some some basic benefits, you know, I think maybe uh, eight to 10 percent, I'm probably being kind, probably more like five to eight percent reduction in lead time after four years. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I asked, you know, what does your market dictate? You know, what do you, oh, we really would like to do that in half, but there's no way. I was like, well, then that's our goal. And so we, I said, you know, this is going to require some major change, not a hundred things, you know, we'll pick eight, ten, you know, key things focus on those, but that should be the goal. And that should then kind of um, be the framework that that team um, kind of works within. And what that in, they ended up agreeing to it. I said, you know, if, you're, if you're not out for, you know, 40, 50% reduction, I, I probably won't work with you. Yeah. Uh, and they came back and said, we think hmm. we're ready. And I was like, okay. Uh, and what was interesting was with that goal in mind, it totally changed the mindset of the folks. They had to really get creative, you know, so those stretch goals set, you know, kind of trigger the creative process, which is problem solving and process improvement. Uh, and then they, you know, headed down a path. There's, this was just very recent, like in November, and they're still socializing the future state. It's a very large corporation. Uh, they're still socializing the future state two, two months into it, you know. Um, another one example is an engineering business. It's an engineer-to-order business. That's their whole business. So shorter duration type of projects. It's not years, you know, but it might be, you know, six months or so. Mm -hmm. And their goal was not time to market. They were pretty good with that. You know, they, it's all engineered to order, so they get an order to design it. They, they uh, have the system installed based on their design. Um, so it wasn't the speed. They, they get there. It was really their process time that needed to be the focus. Uh, the owner of a small business, just 50 people in the whole company, uh, and he said, I want to do more, <clears throat> but I don't want to have to go and hire a lot of, you know, engineers proportionally. I want to grow my business 20%, but I don't want to have to go hire a proportional number of engineers. It's mm. very difficult uh, for me to find them. It requires a lot of training on my part. And, you know, I just, I couldn't do it all, you know, if I had to hire that many more people. Um, so, I mean, this is a company that is a very niche market in terms of what they design. 
So what was interesting when we got to the future state map, I reminded people the goals, all right, you know, we've got to reduce uh, the process time by 20%. Your lead time is fine. We've got to focus on the process time. And they started this down this waste war path. And I got I let them go for about 15 minutes <laughs> just to have some fun. Mm -hmm. And they're finding these ideas that would reduce, you know, five minutes here, 10 minutes there, you know. So I said, all right, guys, let me call a timeout here. And I put a number up. I said, you know, your average uh, time to design is a thousand hours. You're trying to find 200 hours. And they just looked at me and said, well, forget all these ideas. Mm. <laughs> so, Was it because those were just sort of insignificant scattershot? Exactly. I, mm, okay. So, I mean, they had to really redesign their whole, their whole approach. Uh, so that's it, it puts a different spin on things, you know, and, and that's a good thing, not a spin, but it gives it a, a no, much different more view. specific focus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the whole thought process changed. They had to find 200 hours out of a thousand, and that led them down very different ideas and different tools that they needed to do what they do. And you know, how do they minimize the trips because they all these trips that they were taking. You know, uh, to the customer's site, what can they do there to better use their time on site, reduce the rework waste of having to go back because something wasn't right or we didn't get all the information. So, yeah. you know, those are just two examples where if you get them focused on the right targets, driven by the business needs, everything kind of falls in place after that, the proper thinking. Yeah. And those business needs, um, I mean, I think it's really important to focus on that. You know, I, I try to focus conversations with people in healthcare in a very similar way. Um, what what problems need to be solved as as we're recording this, this is uh, Patient Safety Awareness Week, which is a, you know, an annual event that the National yep. Patient Safety Foundation and, and lots of people promote. Improving patient safety, of course, is an ongoing, ongoing battle. But, you know, there was one other story that someone shared with me via social media, and I can only assume that it's true. I, I don't know for certain. I won't say where it came from, but you know, somebody was complaining that in in this zeal to standardize things, you know, people in a, a registration desk function at a hospital were told not only that they had to greet a patient with a smile, which is probably a good thing, but they were told that smile has to be seven seconds long, and they complained <laughs> that they were being timed about how long their smile is. Now, I think what what better way to make people not want to smile <laughs> than to tell them we're timing you and how long you smile. And it's just it's 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 frustrating and it's mind-boggling to me because this is the type of stuff that gets people negative about lean instead of lean being something that helps them do their job better. It reinforces and I say, well, sure, you can you can make someone in an auto plant do something for 7 seconds, but you can't standardize my smile um it's just it's it's really frustrating even when you know it's not neophytes that are coaching these organizations on things like this so it's it's you know back to causes you mentioned in the blog post some of it is well we're new to lean we don't know any better yet some of it is and maybe you can comment on this you know people have their habits and say well this is this is how we did it at my last organization um, what, what, what are your thoughts on, on that dynamic? Do people get stubborn in how they approach lean? Oh, I, I think so. You know, um, God forbid we practice what we preach. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, often I will ask questions of someone that sort of challenges their current belief. And this is, I'm referring to a, a lean practitioner. 
And they won't even consider alternatives. They won't even consider mm-hmm. asking, you know, going and getting more information um, because that information might counter what they maybe have thought for several years um, and have been teaching maybe for several years. And that to me is tragic. Yeah. You know, just yeah. absolutely tragic. And uh, so I don't know if it's habit or arrogance, mm-hmm. you know, that maybe I don't know. I think some of it is, you know, I think people are afraid. They, they, they somehow think, well, if I evolve and I do something differently, that means I was being an idiot beforehand, <laughs> which which I'd say, well, that's not that's not really true. Lean thinkers wouldn't look and, 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 and blame somebody for doing something uh, in a way that's not as good as it could be. It's continuous improvement and, and, and trying to be. You know, I, I struggle with this when we talk about unlean lean or what Bob Emiliani calls fake lean or what I've dubbed, you know, lame lean is mistakenly executed. I, I struggle with, uh, as you put it, practicing what I preach, not being judgmental, not blaming, not, you know, certainly you know, not trying to call people names, but trying to point out, I think, you know, some some serious problems and pitfalls that people can learn from. Yeah, and hopefully then they they learn themselves, but. Some some of the lean zealots, based on where they learned, um, just have great difficulty with that. So I think that that's a, a good challenge to sort of try to lay out there for people. Some people may recognize that in others that they work with. Um, people recognize it in themselves. Maybe that's something really good to reflect on. So um, as we wrap up here, Drew, um, I also wanted to mention your your fourth book and let you give kind of a, a brief summary of that, Unleashing the Power of 3P. And I imagine we've got a mix in the audience. Some people know what 3P is, some people don't. How, how do you sort of summarize um, that approach? So it's another methodology of improvement. Um, it's seeking radical improvement in either product design or process design or layout design. As you know, uh, some hospitals have done nice work with this. Uh, in their design of units and even entire buildings. Uh, so it's getting more and more interest in the healthcare arena as well. Um, but it's, it's based on a few principles that try to get people literally out of their box. So seven ways is, being, is one of those. And you might not do 3P, but you can practice these techniques, these other concepts in, in, the, in any other improvement methodology. Uh, so seven ways is trying to stretch the the thinking by finding seven ways of how to you know design a certain function in a product or maybe lay out an area. Uh, so don't don't narrow too quickly because then the creativity stops. Right. Uh, so again, I've seen hospitals they call it seven howls maybe, but I, I love hearing that because yeah. I recognize what they're trying to do. I'll 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 have to share a link with you and I'll I'll post it in uh, the post for this episode. I saw an article recently, a researcher talking about how the first answer, the first idea we come up with is often not the, is usually not the best. And he was challenging people to come up with 10 alternatives. So I think whether it's seven or whether it's 10, I think the point um, is, is a good one of, of don't fixate too quickly on a way of solving it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think you, I've seen something you wrote about five whys. Well, same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why is it five? Well, I was (laughs) taught five. Well, if we're we're sensing we're narrowing too quickly and not really getting better ideas out, then, then keep stretching it. But it is amazing. You know, people can get three or four, but they get that fifth, sixth and seventh. They really got to stretch. 
Um, there's other techniques that it uses, which is rapid learning cycles. You know, we do more by we learn more by doing than we do by talking about mm -hmm. it. I do that in all my kaizen yeah. events, like in office uh, examples. It's very easy. Oh, uh, we'll just talk about what we want, then we'll give it to the IT people, to, and then they'll figure out. You know, they'll do whatever programming and things we need. I'm like, no. The IT people will be in this event, and yeah. they will create the code, the screens, the mm -hmm. reports with you. Yeah. Uh, and they'll learn um, by doing, and they'll see this is going to work. This isn't going to work as easy as we thought. You know, they'll have a better understanding what the users want. So it's that rapid PDCA cycle, those rapid learning cycles, and that's another piece of 3, 3P. Yeah. Uh, the third element is biomimicry, and that... I myself struggle with trying to use that uh, on occasion, um, but it's trying to find examples in nature. Again, trying to get people out of their box. Yeah, um, thinking like a twelve-year-old is is what Nikhil had said. I think <laughs> it's more like thinking like a six-year-old nowadays. <laughs> Yeah. Um, going back, we just have this genuine curiosity of nature and you want to dig in and find out how things work and you get a little microscope maybe for Christmas, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so those are the three principles. And it's really just, a, to me, people say, oh, innovation, it's innate in people. You can't instill this in others. And I'm like, no, I think with these principles, you can, you can spark innovation um, to some degree in, yeah. in most humans. Yeah. Well, you so, can teach people a process for designing a new building. You can teach people a process for developing. And this is what Lean Startup is about. Having a process and a framework doesn't make it easy and it doesn't give you a 412 step recipe to follow that guarantees innovation or success. Right. Um, so as, as we wrap up, and, and, and Drew, thank you so much for, for being a guest and, and talking about your books and some of your experience. How can people find you online, uh, social media, and, and do you have any upcoming workshops or things you'd want to promote? So um, my website is www.cma4results.com. Uh, you can Google, pretty easy to find. Um, at Drew Locker is the Twitter and you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Um, got some upcoming workshops I teach at the University of Michigan uh, in kind of within their engineering department. So we actually have a kata for daily improvement next Tuesday and Wednesday, or Monday and Tuesday, sorry. Uh, that's kind of our next public workshops. And then uh, after that, uh, not too much, and I'll be in Poland in June. Um, and then we actually have another offering of that cod at the University of Michigan in May. So not, not too much on the public workshop side, uh, though I do have also next week, uh, Wednesday and Thursday at the Lean Enterprise Institute, a two-day workshop on the fundamentals of lean principles in office and services. And we, have a, we run our simulation with that, so it's an interactive uh, oh, workshop. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much what's coming up. Okay, yeah, no, more examples of learning by doing. That's yep. good, good stuff. Gotta have games for adults to learn. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, Drew, thank you uh, so thank much. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Yeah, great talking to you, and uh, we'll, we'll see you around in the Lean community. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For Lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.